Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven's Rule, the podcast that chronicles all things 90s can rock. And now this episode is a pretty cool one for me because uh, I'm talking with the lead singer and one of the guitar players for the first band I ever saw at a club. The first band I ever saw without a family member. The first band I ever saw with my buddies. So without um, further ado, here's my conversation with Wade Sagundiak from Regina, Saskatchewan's Bluebeard. So Bluebeard officially kind of starts in name in around 93, but um, before that, uh, you had mentioned in an email that your first gig was opening for Green Day, which I would be remiss not to ask about how that happened and uh, what do you remember about that show? Yeah, our first show was with, like you say, Green Day at a place in Regina called the Student Union. That was uh, at the University of Regina. We got invited to play that because I think as I remember, we got a tape to a guy in town named Pete Jelinski who booked Mm -hmm. uh, the Student Union at that time. And I think we were trying to get on another show and he said he didn't, he couldn't put us on that but he could put us on with green day and so we opened up the green day show with uh mrs svenson and it was we played a pretty different kind of music at that time which was Mm. sort of like i guess regina music so (laughs) we kind of sounded like a a local band called mrs svenson uh and Mm. used a lot of effects and stuff i guess uh so we ended up playing that show and that was the show where our first show and our drummer got a hit of acid from uh, Trey Cool. <laughs> and I guess that kicked in about halfway through the set. <laughs> and it was not the, I mean, to tell whether it was a bad show just because it was our first show when we were something like 17 years old. Wow. Or yeah. whether it was the acid kicking in <laughs> that, that made it seem more surreal. But it was a, it was a, Probably not our best performance, but it was super fun and kind of started an itch in us to try and play as much as possible. Interesting. Um, Could you tell Green Day was going to be a big deal based on that gig? Well, they were hugely popular. That that was apparent. And the songs are super catchy. And especially in Regina, there was a lot of like uh, kind of pop punky stuff was was pretty popular here. Mm. Maybe a little more like skate punk kind of stuff but they were they were amazing to watch and super exciting that was when they i guess the album that came out at that time was kerplunk right so just before uh that big one hit we saw them then they came back to regina maybe two years later after what was that record dookie is that the dookie first one on the major that after that record came out they came back to Regina and me and I think it was Scott were driving down uh, Albert Street, which is kind of the main strip in Regina. The day that Green Day had come back and they were playing at a place called the Agrodome, yeah, which nice. is like a big kind of the main concert, the huge concert venue or the big concert venue in Regina. So they were playing at the Agrodome and we saw Trey Cool and somebody else, Mike Durnt, I think, uh, and their manager or something had scooters and they were at the, there used to be a phone booth on the corner of, I guess that's 14th Avenue and Albert street. 
And we saw them right. there and pulled over and said, hey, we played with you like two years ago. And, <laughs> and uh, I don't know if you remember that. And they were like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I remember whatever. And we said, oh, you guys are playing tonight. We're not going to the show. And they said, oh, well, that's, that's okay. Can you give us a ride back to the Agrodome? So we gave them a ride back to the Agrodome. And they gave <laughs> us uh, two tickets to that concert for that huh. night. And, of course, being young punk kids we kind of bummed around for the rest of the afternoon and went back just before the show started and sold the tickets out <laughs> in front of the agrodome <laughs> so i guess that i i don't know if we were too cool for school or just would have rather had you know 60 bucks but <laughs> exactly that's awesome but pichelinski at that you know he was so good in that place the student union was kind of the place where yeah all ages shows happened all the time. There's so many bands that went through there that mm -hmm. he was so good at putting on local bands to open and everything. He's, he's kind of, a, a he was an amazing person for the Regina scene at that time for what he did was just incredible. You know, describe that Regina scene for somebody who might not have been here. You know, what was it like kind of when you kind of first got going 91 to 93? In the early days, there was, at very early, there weren't a lot of places for old ages shows to happen. There was mm. a place called The Club, which was on Broad Street, uh, the Saskatchewan Cultural Exchange. And that right, place right, was right. always full of kind of Regina bands. Like uh, there was bands like The Family Dog and Bread Axe and The Waltons would play there. And, and it was kind of upstairs uh, on Broad Street, right downtown. A uh, very small club, and you had to sign in before you went in because they served alcohol uh, and had all ages shows. And I think that was kind of illegal unless they were a private members hmm. club. Right. So you had to sign in and then go see these shows. But that's where that's where I first kind of started going to local shows when I was in grade ten or something. So nineteen ninety and ninety one, I guess. So that's where I first started going to shows, and it was a very vibrant scene. That building ended up burning down, and at the same time, uh, they were doing shows at the Student Union, as I mentioned, and there was just a ton of shows, so like No Means No and Before My Time, Skinny Puppy and stuff like that. That's where they would play. Hmm. So between those two places, you could basically get a show whenever you wanted it seemed like there was something going on at the su every weekend and for sure at the the club there was something going on basically every weekend but it was a small scene not a huge amount of people that were going to these shows but big enough that it was kind of self-sustaining if that makes sense You'd see so many different kinds of bands, especially at the club. Like I mentioned, the Waltons, they're not really mm -hmm. a kind of an all-ages sort of band. They're, they're a little more grown up, but you'd see them, and then you'd see Mrs. Fenson and Funkenstein. So it was just this kind of melting pot of different styles of music in one night. It wasn't like you saw a bill mm -hmm. of three hardcore bands or whatever. It was just right. a mash of music. It was super cool. Um, you had mentioned that um, your sound kind of developed between, like, say, 91, that first Green Day show, to 93, when you guys kind of officially became Bluebeard, that your sound had kind of developed between then. Um, what kind of influences led to that change in uh, kind of style of music? 
Yeah, the, I think when we started, because we were, like I say, we were quite young. So I was either probably 16 when we would have started playing together, me and Scott McEntee. So I would have been quite young. And, and we the shows we were seeing were mostly Mrs. Svensson and that kind of thing. So it was there was a lot of noodly guitar stuff or kind of, the, like I say, this kind of skate punk stuff, although... Svensson was maybe a little more on the pop spectrum, but a lot of effects and stuff. And I think at the time when we were young, just because that's what we saw, we sort of emulated that kind of Mm. sound. And then eventually, I think after that Green Day show, we kind of said, no, (laughs) it just wasn't (laughs) for us. And it was different than the music we listened to, for sure. Like what we saw and what we listened to were different at the beginning scott who was somebody i played with for a long well for the entirety of the band was really into metallica and his favorite drummer was in motley crew so he loved motley crew and metallica and the stuff that i listened to was minor threat and fugazi and rites huh. of spring and and you know kind of dc punk that's what i really loved and the other bands that we loved like canadian bands so like no means no was super important to us or at least me i can't speak for scott but i know we saw them a lot because they came through town so they were super important and super interesting i think at one point we just kind of decided well nah, we're gonna try to do something different than what's happening in town just because we listened to different stuff than i think a lot of people in town at the time maybe listen to so (laughs) we started kind of playing more with that and that's that was when we changed the name uh well first to fuse and then to to bluebeard Hmm. but that stuff kind of came out and i think at the time it helped differentiate us from from other bands for sure from who were our peers at the time mrs svensson and kind of funkenstein and that stuff it was a way to uh be different and to just be able to do what we enjoyed. So now, uh, a no means no is of course a legendary band, but a lot of people might only know them by name because they get referenced a lot as influential, rightly so. Um, is there a record or a song you think that people should check out by them? The entirety of Wrong, like their their album Wrong, which came out when I was in maybe grade nine or grade ten, but that record was and still is mind-blowing and one of my favorite records of all time like there's not a bad song on that record <laughs> it's nice. just amazing and it sounds so different from anything else like anything else they were an amazing <laughs> band that just i still uh, just the other day i was watching videos of no means no playing live because to nice. see them live was bonkers
touched on Walton's there um, a little bit. Uh, now, their big record came out in 92, and I'm curious if that kind of gave the Regina scene kind of a boost or a shot in the arm, knowing that they can do it so we can do it as well, like on a national scale, or was that important to see uh, one of your kind of peers kind of make it, so to speak? Well, I think because they're a bit older than us, and like I say, they were, they were kind of grown-up music, I think at that time, we didn't really pay too much attention to what they were doing nationally. We knew that they went out on tours and stuff. So it it was cool to see somebody that was in town go out and do something that you maybe aspired to do. But by the time we really started going, they had left Regina. I think they were in Toronto for a period there. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was cool when they came back to town and as young kids, you would kind of hear stories about what was happening with the record label. And at, at the time, they, there was an organization in Saskatchewan that was kind of, it's like Sask Music, but for, 
before it was called SAS Music, it was called something else, which is okay. to promote musicians in Canada to the or in Saskatchewan to the industry uh, in Canada and worldwide. So that was their job, and they like the Waltons would constantly be sort of something that they were telling you about or you'd read about right. uh, them and their kind of newsletter stuff or right right so it was important to see that they had made it but for us at least it was kind of they're a totally different thing mm -hmm. and being a, a bunch of punk kids it's a little less likely that that it's going to happen for you <laughs> do you know does that make sense <laughs> yeah. like that you're yeah. just you're just a totally different thing and it, that didn't ever really appeal to us but it was cool to see that they went out there and did it now you mentioned that you you landed a publishing deal with Polygram, but I'm curious, like the journey to get to that, like how does one get approached by Polygram, or do you approach them, or to get publishing deals? Right. So, being from Re Regina, which is not exactly the best location to start from, <laughs> right? You have to find exactly. ways to to make yourself known, and especially here uh, to tour. As a starting point, it's practically impossible unless you want to play to literally no one or unless you're <laughs> playing people's houses. So, I mean, which was a good thing about the punk scene. You could play a house, but we weren't really that kind of band. That was more the hardcore stuff kind of did that sort of thing. So for us, it was hard. And the easiest way to get uh, shows set up to places like Toronto or Vancouver was to play uh, showcasing things at festivals like Canada mm. Music Week and uh, the, I guess it was Music West, the one in uh, Vancouver. So kind of that's how we started getting out there was we'd play a show in Regina just before we left. We'd play a show in Winnipeg because that would be the next stop. And yeah. then you have literally nothing for <laughs> the next you know 24 hours until you get to toronto and play the showcase and at the time we kind of had a manager uh, not really a, i mean a, a, he was our manager but he was kind of just a person that we knew uh who helped set up these shows and do all this stuff and we would end up going to canada music week as a initially i think as a way to play a show to not nobody if that makes sense, right. it, yes, it, indeed, you yeah. could go and you're you're guaranteed an audience. And we had barely played Toronto. I think actually our first time in Toronto, we showed up and there was not. Where did we play? I can't remember. But there was not a lot of people there. And then the next time we went, we were kind of playing for for people that had actually intended to see us. So that was interesting. But going there and meeting industry people, and I think because we were very different <laughs> than, yes, indeed. than kind of what was going on in, in Canada at the time, mm -hmm. uh, I think we got some attention just because of that. And because it was the 90s and, and Nevermind had come out, there was a you know, Canada's delay where nobody really understands uh, <laughs> that they have to get on board. But once they figure it out, it's like a feeding frenzy. So they they kind of wanted to absorb something that was maybe like a Nirvana-esque or 
in that kind of vein. So we played these things and would go out to Vancouver or Toronto. I think it was Toronto we played for next to nobody. Then we went to Vancouver for Music West and played a place called The Town Pump uh, mm. for a showcase there. And that really got us a fair amount of attention. That was when we went back to Toronto the second time. Uh, there was a lot of people, industry people there, that we were on much music kind of accidentally as they were covering Canada Music yeah. Week and they're traveling down the street and they walk up to some music industry fellow and ask, who are you here to see? And the guy goes, well, they're on stage right now. And then the camera goes in and it was us at the Elma combo. And we didn't know anything about that till we came home. And then somebody said, Oh, you guys were on much music. (laughs) It's like, it was a kind of a, (laughs) yeah, it was like a surreal thing. And after that, kind of meeting was when we started meeting with the major labels in Canada who had suddenly developed an interest and taste in the kind of music we were doing. So that was sort of how we started going to that stuff. And one of the one of the people that being I should say, being the kind of people we are or were, especially at that time where we played kind of old age shows and thought we were or felt that we were mostly in a kind of a punk vein that major record labels were not really something that we were too interested or even curious about. So Hmm. when we did sign the publishing deal, it was more like, uh, well, they're just buying songs. It's not like we're on a label or they're telling us what to do. So Hmm. sure. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, in, in the timeline of Bluebeard, was this, before that another white male tour or after yeah this would have been before yeah now another white male they at the time that polygram has a bunch of different labels under its umbrella well now it's the universal but they were polygram a and m and a couple more labels that are run under the polygram umbrella and another white male was at the time we went out with them just recently signed to A&M, I think, in Canada. I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. And had released an album called uh, Cattle. Yeah, but they were album. friends with us before we before we went on the road with them and before they got signed. So, Did you guys uh, connect through one of those Much West kind of deals or how did you that's guys kind exactly of That's exactly how we did yeah. it. Yeah, that's exactly how we did it. I think we nice. met them in in Vancouver and they were because uh, that's where they're from and they were roughly the same age as us played maybe not totally the similar kind of music but in the same vein we could certainly mm-hmm. talk about music in the in the same sort of way and they were awesome and fun so that's how we we ended up making friends with them did you guys go across Canada or Western Canada or yeah with them we went across Canada uh, from Vancouver to Halifax. Wow. And there, I mean, there's, that was a lot of fun because it, you're out with your friends and then they had other openers. So we did that tour in another band called 10 days late, played some of it. And then I think a band from the United States called sponge got picked Hmm. up for the next bit of it. Uh, so we got to go with them all over and see all sorts of stuff. It was an uh, amazing time and j- just bonkers, <laughs> just bonkers <laughs> things happened. We went with them across Canada and we, 
ended up playing in a London, Ontario. And we played this show and the next morning we woke up and went out for breakfast to a restaurant there, just a small restaurant. Uh, I walked in and there was a, a elderly woman sitting at a table uh, who wasn't, didn't get up. We thought maybe she was a patron. And then she got up and asked us how we were doing and what we would like. And so we, we told her we were there for breakfast and she said, Oh, okay. You know, great. I'll take, she came over and took our orders and we all kind of said, you know, bacon and eggs or whatever. And then 10 minutes passed and nothing happened. And then finally she came out <laughs> to the table and took us back to the kitchen and had wow. us make our own breakfast. No way. So there was nobody who worked in the kitchen. It was just <laughs> her in this restaurant. And like I say, when we came in, she was crying at a table talking to another man. The, a guy we were with who was doing sound for Another Way Mail had asked her if she had any cigarettes for sale. And she said no, but she could go get him some. And then she left the restaurant and ran down the street to a corner store <laughs> to go buy I guess Ron, a pack of cigarettes and come back. It was the most insane experience of my life, but something I'll never forget. So going For out sure. with them was like a ton of fun, just a ton of fun. And that tour is um, documented for people um, on YouTube. There's a full gig taking place in Regina of you guys, your full set and another white male's full set. And it's pro shot and it sounds amazing. How, what is the story behind getting that gig recorded? That our manager had set that up to, I don't actually know why. He knew quite a few people who were in film. And so he'd set this up to record it. And yeah, there was a whole bunch of people there. But it was just something that our manager had set up. And we came back and did it. And I don't think anything ever happened with it. I never, I don't have a tape of it. So to see it. Uh, when the guys from Another White Male put it up, that was super interesting because <laughs> otherwise I would have no idea what happened there. Uh, <laughs> but he, he set it up. I think the thing was they were trying to show that you could record these concerts. A company in Regina could record these huh. concerts and do live feeds for Bunch Music and, and what have you. Right. I think is actually how that ended up getting huh. done. But Interesting. It, it's a... Cool documents, that's that's for sure. sure. I mean, not the best show to, to put up. I was kind of angry, I think, that night. So You were uh, upset, yes, throughout the entire game. Yeah. You yes. were right mad. I, I think we were pretty upset. We had come back from being somewhere and had heard that uh, one of our members, their little brother, had gotten beat up. Uh, wow. And part of it was because of that we were in a band that that person didn't like. And I think uh, we got very upset because it seemed like a absolutely insane thing to do. And at that time, uh -huh. I think in Regina is a very, it's a pretty tight scene and pretty small. Like if you've, anyone who's never been to Regina, it's a small place. It's a small town, especially at that time. Mm -hmm. And everybody in the scene kind of knows who each other are. Mm -hmm. And there was kind of backlash to us because we had maybe signed the publishing deal and, wow. and talked to these majors and did huh. things that maybe people didn't think was super cool or becoming of a band from Regina, especially in the old wow. ages scene. That's what it felt like 
to me whether that's actually what was going on is hard to say but yeah. uh that's how it felt at the time and that i remember that show we were just super upset that that kind of thing was happening mm -hmm. especially to a, a little kid yeah it's a mm -hmm. it's a oh, bad show to, to, to be taped that's for sure but but i must tell you that um and I, cause I was watching it because what had happened was I had a friend come over from he was he's working in Taiwan so he came over and we were just hanging out and uh, somehow we started talking about oh we started talking about Jar remember Jar dot Jar they were from Vancouver they came a little bit after you guys uh, Jar which yeah. led to Flybanger which led to another white male I was like man do you remember another another white male and I found that gig at Channel One and the the we watched the full show and the, the next video YouTube put up was Bluebeard. I'm like, fucking Bluebeard? I can't believe it, man. Because uh you know, I had no idea that you guys had a pro shot gig out there. And so we started watching yeah. it and me and my buddy are looking at the gig and we're like, this dude's vocals are flawless, man. Like your vocals, dude, in that show are flawless to our ears. Like you were upset the whole gig, you were playing hard and the vocals it sounds like a record. Like it's, it's so good. I mean, I couldn't believe it, dude. So as a, as a document, um, I, as a fan, I'd say it's a pretty good one. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, that's good. It's good that it like, yeah, like I say, I'm glad he put it up cause I'd never see it. I've shown it to my children and they nice. kind of laugh because I have <laughs> blonde hair and, and hair, you know, like <laughs> I, I, that was probably after we played for a while. Usually I shave my head and I still shave my head. So for my kids to see me with actual hair, they just right. think it's super weird. <laughs> but it's a great it's a great document and a fun time. And there was so many people there. And I, I think it's good to look back and just remember what in Regina right now, there's some shows, but it's not like it was then. There's no, no. just the scene at that time was just incredible. And everyone was super supportive of even local band. Even if you hated them, you everyone would go to a show. <laughs> and we had a, there was Channel One, and then there was, well, the new Channel One and the old Channel One. So the old Channel One was Venue, or the Venue. And then it became Channel One when it moved over to Broad Street, which was much bigger. But the old Venue space then became a place called the Underground, which was exclusively an old ages club. Hmm. And everybody came through there. So Bad Brains, like literally everyone, Trenchmouth, who were just amazing. All these bands came through and we were kind of like the house band there. But huh. everyone would go and it was always packed with kids. It was just an amazing place to be. Like, so to see that, at least in some degree, it would have been cooler if it was shot at the underground, but it was shot at Channel One. Yeah. But it it was so amazing, just that whole scene from 1991 to probably 2000. I just remember it being for sure. Yeah. Amazing. Now uh, we touched on it a little bit, but um, Bluebeard has a lot of political songs. A lot of really like a new home was played at that gig that uh, we referenced and. Theory of Natural Selection, I think, Selling Point, we're all played at that gig. Um, yeah. Can you talk about, I guess, the issues that you were upset about then or that you wanted to bring attention to? Are they still issues today? I mean, totally. Everything that I think we did at that time was just a, that you don't want to write love songs, right? There's, right. there's more than enough of those in the world. So right. we ended up writing, and I guess that's what we listened to. Like if you listen to, I listened to the Gang of Four and 
Fugazi and stuff like that. They're mm-hmm. all very political bands. So f- for me, I guess as a lyricist, that was the most important thing. And we had songs like New Home, which was basically a history of Canada and how uh, colonialism has played a part in our history and how we maybe should have uh, taken stock of that and been a little more aware of it at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and still Regina and Saskatoon, especially were incredibly racist, uh, towns in my opinion, the, the, the way I think we saw it, there was, uh, the moonlight drives and stuff in Saskatoon mm-hmm. where, uh, yeah. they were taking, uh, Aboriginal people out of town and another woman was, was murdered in Regina and, uh, it was a brutal, very racist place. I think it maybe still is, though. At at that time, it felt it it certainly felt you could see it more obviously. Uh, so we kind of wrote songs about that. It was just more of a way to speak about something that was maybe more important. So or or uh, partner abuse, that sort of thing. That that was mm-hmm. mostly what we wrote about. I think. People should write about that stuff all the time. Like I say, there's there's too many love songs. Nobody needs that. Nobody needs a song about partying. <laughs> you know, it's right, exactly. not. I don't think anybody needs that. And especially if you're kind of on the fringes of of music, there's there's literally no reason that you should be writing that kind of song. I mean, sure they have their place, but you might as well use music as a chance to, to speak about things that matter. I mean, that no means no did that DOA did that. So like, that's, that's the stuff that I Hmm. remember too, is seeing those bands, hearing them. And it just makes more sense. It it made me Mm -hmm. think when I was a kid, so you might as well make other people think, right?
is that something that every member has to get on board with? Like, you know, being that out front and that, you know, the lyrics being that frank, I guess. I mean, is that something you have to have a conversation with as a band, saying these are what the, the kind of songs we're going to write? I think nobody really cared, but also it's not like I was singing about something that that anyone could conceivably disagree with. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. Exactly. Like if yeah, you yeah. have to, di- if you disagree or that colonialism is bad, then you probably shouldn't be in the band. And I guess you'd just leave. Right. So <laughs> right, it right. wasn't anything that we ever really had to talk about. And then we were influenced by our surroundings. So at, the, at that time in the nineties, I think much more than now, uh, Saskatchewan was a pretty left province in the way I felt it, at least everyone I knew would have been an NDP supporter and, and very much on the left as opposed to what it is now. So I think everyone sort of would agree with the politics that the band had. It would be pretty hard mm. to find somebody even in the crowd who was opposed to what we were saying. <laughs> the only time we ever got in trouble actually is, and this is is just because we were bad and I guess probably still remain horrible at interviews. So <laughs> th- that was where we would have got ourselves into more trouble than I see, or, yeah. or I guess things we said on stage too, because maybe we, it's easier to write things in a song than to just stand on stage and then uh, absolutely try to discuss something that's happening. Yeah, because you turn like New Home into like an earworm, like such a serious subject, but yet the chorus, I mean, gets stuck in the brain of the listener. For sure, like uh, the Gang of Four, that's something that they did. Gang of Four is a British band that they released several albums. One, one of my favorites was called Entertainment, and the songs are kind of weird post-punk funk songs for the most part. But they have just great kind of sloganeering. And I think that's what, what we took from that, or that's what I took from them, is that that sloganeering, that as long as you have a thing that you can repeat, you can drill it into someone's head. Obviously, we're not the kind of mm. band that has a hook, you know. Right. And I couldn't sing a melody really to save my life. So <laughs> to just kind of chant things out was a lot easier. But yeah, it's good when you have something that's that's uh, political but catchy. Right, right. We kind of s- stepped away from that later on, but especially on that first record, it was there's some catchy stuff on there. Actually, and before we kind of move on, you had mentioned a couple times in our chat uh, much music. And uh, we had discussed in our kind of pre-interview that you guys were, in fact, Rick the Temp's first on-camera interview, which is a big deal because the dude's like a legend. Um, how did that come to be? What were the kind of circumstances surrounding that? Yeah, that's a like a Canadian heritage moment, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. So uh, <laughs> we were Rick the Temp's first interview, and that came about because uh, after we signed with Polygram, they... I guess wanted us to get some publicity. So hired a publicist for roughly two days, I think. (laughs) So we had to do a series of press and, and we went in and uh, got on much music. I don't think, I don't remember performing on much 
just that we were Rick the Temp's first interview and he was telling us about how we were his first on-air interview and being a bunch of again kids you know we're 19 I think uh Dale might have been 18 at the time wow uh so when we're there we're just kind of goofy and he you know, being a band he'd probably never heard of and had no idea who we were, <laughs> asked us some questions about how the road was going. And we made some jokes and said, you know, that the the van was starting to smell because at that time, obviously, for just out of our teen years, or still 19, 20, maybe, uh, you get kind of stinky in a van in the summer, it gets sweaty. And uh, especially we slept in there and everything. So uh, we were telling him that that we had used a bunch of uh, smelly trees, uh, and I think he thought we were talking about weed, but we were talking <laughs> about we were talking about the green, uh, right. you know, forest smelling trees that you put on the windshield thing. But he kind of gave us a weird look, and uh, <laughs> it was really a mess. Later, somebody sent me a link as he was interviewed by someone and had mentioned. I think it was, what was the worst interview you've ever done? And I think we were like, oh, he said something about his first interview uh, was with a band <laughs> called Bluebeard. And I wish I could find that online, too, because I it was so funny to me that, that he would, A, remember it, and that it would be such a yeah. horrible experience. But it's understandable that it would be. It was a series of kind of... After that, we had to do another interview, but I don't know where that went. I never saw it in the Much Music studios with some other press person. It was oh. a series of weird interviews. We went to uh, the radio station in Vancouver there. Is it CITR or whatever? And we showed up there. And uh, when we showed up for that interview, that's where Nardwar works. And he was there. Right. And kind of our experience with that was he, he we showed up to get the interview done and he came up and showed us pictures of, at that time, I think the guy from Typo Negative was in Playgirl, oh, yeah. was in Playgirl yeah. magazine. Pete Steele, man. Yeah, that's yeah. so he kept showing us pictures of, of <laughs> the guy from Typo Negative in Playgirl magazine. That was a totally weird experience. Coming And that night, we played a show at, at the university, I think, with DOA, and our van, the battery wore out, and then Joey, shithead, from DOA came out and helped us start our van. So it was this super surreal day of, of, you know, meeting one of your heroes, helping him try to jumpstart your van and seeing naked photographs of typo negative. It was just a really (laughs) weird, that's amazing. And did you guys ever get close to, to doing a video or did you guys do a video? We had at one point made a video, uh, with a filmmaker, uh, in Regina for a video, a song that's not even on the album. This was, was really early on. I think he got some grant money and needed something to do. And we were the band that did it. I think it got played on much like maybe once or twice. I never Hmm. saw it, but I think somebody said they saw it. It's hard to remember. (laughs) And um, you also mentioned that um, nobody in the band has a copy of that much music interview with Rick the Temp. So um, I actually emailed Rick and he doesn't have a copy either. So if anybody out there remembers Bluebeard on much music and Rick the Temp's debut, uh, please uh, drop me a message and I will forward it off to uh, Wade and Rick because I'm sure they'd love to to have it in their archives. It's probably a pretty special thing to remember. Yeah. And now, actually, if we can get back to the uh, 
to the first record. So what kind of led to you guys ultimately going to Vancouver and, and recording one for, uh, is it Melodia or Melodia? Yeah, Melodia Records in Melodia. Calgary. At first, we just kind of recorded it to go get it done. When we signed the publishing contract, we got uh, some money, not a huge amount, that we decided to go outside of Regina and, and head to Vancouver to record a record at a place called Turtle Studios in, well, just outside Vancouver. And at the time, it was the space was very interesting. The guy uh, that owned it had a mobile unit that he pulled into a kind of a warehouse space so he would drive his mobile recording unit truck into the recording space and he had a live huh. room and then uh, do all the engineering inside the truck and it was super fun to get out of town I think was the main thought we took a couple friends with us or one friend to come with us when we recorded the record just a chance to get out of town and uh, do some stuff maybe where we weren't comfortable. And in Regina, there was basically at that time, maybe one recording studio that was, that was active called Touchwood. That's yeah, where Touchwood, everyone yeah. recorded. So mm -hmm. like Mrs. Svensson would have recorded there and Funkenstein and uh, the, the Waltons had done some stuff at Touchwood. So at that time, that was the only place to go. And we'd kind of, it was a very, very small it's in the basement of, of a guy named Grant Hall's house. Mm -hmm. And it was very small, but super great. But we just needed to kind of change it up. And the money that we got from Polygram helped pay for that because we, you know, had to stay in a different town for, I think we were there for two weeks. And then I was there for another week afterwards. So hmm. uh, it was good to take that money and get a chance to do something else and be a little creative in a space that we weren't familiar with if that makes sense so there's a lot of like right. feedback and weird stuff that we could do there that you just wouldn't have been able to do in regina interesting did the songs kind of change once you got into like kind of a more professional setting a different city uh... yeah almost everything would have been completed before yeah. the record and most of that is is pretty old songs well, not super mm. old. There's some that are were really old and some that were relatively new. So we didn't, it, it was a good chance to kind of spread our wings. Like there, we had a part at the, I think it's at the beginning of the record where it's just kind of pure noise. We had a trumpet and everyone kind of went into this large room and got to turn their amps up real loud, which is more like how we would have done things live. We were notorious feedbackers, I guess. So uh, <laughs> to be able to go and, and do that in a big space and just crank an amp, that was a lot of fun and pretty creative for us, like just something that we wouldn't have been able to do anywhere right. else. But most of the songs we would have gone in with and not kind of worked on there. It wasn't until later on that we kind of, like after that, where we would have had newer songs to come in with, but we toured the same songs for two years, maybe, uh, or mm. most of the same songs. You can hear which ones are different on that record that, that sound kind of starts to change. There's mm. a song called Ode to Whitney on that record, which sounds yeah. quite different than the rest of the songs. 
so that would have been a pretty recent song and we would have been probably the most excited to play that but then there's other songs mm. on there that are super old like like selling point even would have been a pretty old song by that point so once you have a record out i mean your first album cd um does that change the mindset of the band i mean do you want to take that record to the u.s for example do you want to take it across canada a bunch of times do you have a, a game plan at all or are you just kind of happy to have one i i think like i say we weren't super interested in the music industry so we loved to play live and i think that's where we were best so for us it's great to go out and take it around but even then that album doesn't it's it kind of doesn't sound like us as much as what we sounded like live mm. i mean so we wanted to get it around and i think at the time we thought once we had that recorded we were going to use it to kind of pitch people if we wanted to mm. uh, or have it to send to get more shows uh. but we didn't ever really think of it at that before then we'd had the polygram thing we'd talked to some people at warner brothers and they had offered us a kind of a demo deal. It's like a development deal, they called it, mm. which is they take a band and, and then, I guess, teach you how to be a rock band. I never really understood what it was, <laughs> but it's, to, it's basically to lock. What it really is is a way to lock you into a contract and them to decide if you get better, they'll release an album. If you don't, it doesn't matter because all they've signed you to is this development deal and you're just uh. going to be stuck in it. So <laughs> we refused to do that. And at that time, yeah, it was just we had made friends with a band in Calgary called the Primrods. Mm. And the Primrods owned a, well, Ben from the Primrods owned a record label called Melodia. And so we were just excited to put it out with them and sell it where we could and have something to sell it uh, when we went on the road just because we might not get to places like Toronto or like Thunder Bay or anywhere quite regularly just because we're from Regina. So mm -hmm. it was a good thing to sell when we got to a show or to have them send out across Canada. It was good for us. That That's all I think we really expected of it. And it was, it kind of had to be done so that Polygram would have something to sell or licensed songs for although the only thing i think they ever licensed they licensed one song that shows up all the time in our uh shazam so oh, yeah. we always get one song called uh whistleblower shows up on as being shazammed in apple music and that's because they sold it or licensed it to degrassi the next generation oh no way so in one app yeah in one episode of Degrassi the next generation there's a bunch of kids skateboarding outside and uh talking about a car race and they're playing one of our <laughs> songs in the background of that and so it's just constantly being shazammed wow I don't know if everybody's watching a bunch of the next generation <laughs> or what I'm, but yeah so it was a way for them to have something to to put out to so that they could license the songs I'm glad we got on the topic of Whistleblower, man, because that is uh, one of my favorite tunes on the record. Do you remember uh, anything behind the writing or uh, recording of that track? Any kind of uh, background on it? I remember we wrote it, and uh, <laughs> it, then everybody told me it sounded like Helmet. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit. And it does. And yeah. I, I didn't really, 
I hadn't really paid attention to that. I wasn't a helmet fan, surprisingly. Yeah, and it is surprising, actually. So everybody told me that it sounded like helmet. And then now every time I hear it, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's totally helmet. So I must have been <laughs> listening to that song and sucked it up. And, and then we put that out. But yeah, that's all I remember about it. Yeah, yeah, I hear influences of Helmet, even though it's not intentional, Fugazi, uh, Sunny Day Real Estate. Yeah, for sure Fugazi. Like when we were named, before we were Bluebeard, we were called Fuse, which was taken from a Right to Spring song where he says, the world is my Fuse. So we named mm. our band Fuse because I love the Right to Spring, and then everybody in Regina started calling us Fuse Gazi. <laughs> and that got a little annoying. Uh, yeah, so I could see we, why. We changed sure. our name, yeah. Oh, that's funny, man. Yeah, it it is funny. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, it's a good burn. It is. It is. It's clever, man. So after that, you had mentioned that um, that was your really only like released album as Bluebeard was was Selling Point. Um, that's right. You know, you had some demos. Um, called the Buffalo Pound demos that came out maybe a year or two after that. You're about six or seven songs. I'm wondering what kind of changed with the band at that point that that never yeah. really actually went to the next level. I think what happened was we we put out two more songs on a compilation on Melodia that I think are kind of one song called A Special Presentation, one song called uh, Fortune Teller, which is literally about nothing. That song's. <laughs> A, f a fun song but those two songs were kind of the height i think of us sonically and musically that's mm. this those are the two songs that i love the most interesting and after that we'd started to kind of moved away from being as sort of i always think we're kind of a punk band but i can hear that it's there's some pop stuff like you say there's catchy things and mm -hmm. i think at the time we started to kind of branch out of how we played our guitars that it was more interesting to make sounds with our guitars or try to change what we did in a way instead of being stagnant you couldn't just mm. keep playing the same songs over and over so for the buffalo pound stuff we'd recorded those as a demo uh and to give to polygram because they mm. would have wanted more songs or to know what's going on so we recorded those at a there was a retreat out in Buffalo Pound Provincial Park in Saskatchewan where it was on the hillside and you could rent it. And we'd hmm. rented it through Touchwood and recorded out there all in one room, this great big space, and just to get these songs on tape. And no idea. We kind of did that and enjoyed it. Like really enjoyed the experience of recording out there at that time. I think we really liked the songs, though they weren't quite at a, a ready point for anything. Mm. So uh, going out there and doing that, getting the songs together just to hear them and kind of figure stuff out later. Although we even took those songs out on the road for with another white male, I think some of those. So mm. uh, to get that together for Polygram and to, to maybe see what we could do with it, uh, with Melodia or another indie label was, I think, the thought. But shortly mm. after that is is when we kind of broke up. Mm. I think it was just everybody got tired of being a band. <laughs> yeah. 
It happens. So there was yeah. no real, and it we didn't put that out. There was, I think, when we recorded, a, I made maybe ten cassettes that huh. I gave to the band, uh, like all of us, and then maybe one to Jonah, who was in a band called Pillar. Maybe yep, every pillar. member of Pillar probably got a copy of that, and a couple other friends, and that was that's that was all that ever happened. And then from that point on, huh. every year I hear somebody say, "Oh, that Buffalo Pound stuff was awesome," but I have no <laughs> idea how, how they ever got it. Or so it kind of has traveled around Regina at least for a couple of years after that, and and made its way to a bunch of people so when we finally put it out i guess now i don't have to feel like somebody was sneaking away with my stuff kid bootlegged yeah yeah you totally get bootlegged tape traded all around us <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> like in regina that i'm sure there's multiple generations of that tape which was already <laughs> multiple generations and the <laughs> copy that got done that everyone would have got would have been too fast even i think the one that's on the record is a, a like on the compilation we put out is directly from an audio cassette that i had so oh, wow. it's straight from cassette to cassette so everybody's hearing it the same way on cassette i like to highlight a track off that off those sessions um you can pick uh, which one and if you remember anything about it great if not also great uh 15 minutes uh, 400 degrees or grain of salt I really kind of gravitated to those two songs of all of them. Yeah, 15 minutes at 400 degrees is probably my favorite too. Yeah. Uh, like I say, those songs were not finished. So we wrote lyrics for most of those at Buffalo Pound. Interesting. So it's probably not about anything until right, right. later on. Then we would have had something to do with it. Yeah, that's a great song. I like that one.
can dial back a little bit that the first record really wasn't reflection of you guys live. I'm curious, what do you do you attribute that to? Like just not doing it live in studio or the crowd, not having the energy or how come you think it sounds different from a live show? Now, I think that as a live band, we were hmm, more, well, we, we would play around a little more, I think, with just how we played songs, not in weird ways, but you might, when you're playing live, you might stop because we had two guitar players, I might stop playing altogether, hmm. or we might extend parts of songs right. and do things that when even when we would rehearse some of those extensions that we do as a band practicing in a basement would lead to other songs. Hmm. So I think that sometimes when we played live, there was a more of an opportunity to uh, find things. And when we, when we went in to do the record, it kind of we still had a chance to, to spread our wings a little bit, but you have to, you have to commit, right? You have to commit to something or you'll never be done. For sure. Yeah. You don't really have to commit to anything when you play live. Mm. You just do it. I mean, you've committed to it, but you're not, it only lasts for the length of the song unless it's recorded and put on YouTube it only lasts the length of that song. You can do whatever you want. And I think that that was maybe something that we did better live. Plus the energy is just there when you're playing in front of other people that it's hard to sing when you're staring at a wall. Does right, that make yeah, sense? Yeah, you can imagine. Like it's, yeah. a, it's a totally different experience just trying to find the energy to sing a song when you're standing by yourself and talking into a mic it became a little like so even on the the buffalo pound stuff because we were in a single room playing at once live off the floor that mm. i think that those recordings are better it sounds more like what we sounded like as a band just because mm. you do different things with your instruments you're a little more excited by the people around you you can watch your drummer and be excited by him being excited or the bass player. You can, you get to watch the other members of your band being excited by what you're doing, what we're all doing and just mm -hmm. growing more confident in what you do by watching them being confident in what they do. So I think that's something that kind of got lost on the, the record that we recorded. Uh, yeah. Interesting. No, well said for sure. Now, well, the nineties Bluebeard didn't survive the nineties. Um, it did come back and it, it, it uh, kind of reincarnated in a way in a band called Bull Market in the early 2000s with, uh, I think, m most of the band, if not all of it, and then, of course, somebody from Pillar, Jonah. Um, yeah. What led to that kind of reformation and then why the change in name? Yeah, I think I had played for a little while with another, like you say, Pillar, which then became <laughs> Ghosts of Modern Man. <laughs> and they, yeah. were, they were pretty successful and they were great. For sure, band. yeah. And... I think we broke up and then just decided a couple years later to get back together for no other reason than maybe we were bored. <laughs> so we got back together as bull market and did that through the nineties, but basically never left Regina. It, wow. I don't think we ever played anywhere as bull market. Huh. We just stayed in Regina. I think we're happy to just kind of write some songs and play some shows. So we got to play with, bands we liked like 
we got we finally got to play with Fugazi, which was incredible. Huh, wow. We got to play with uh, Bad Brains and stuff. So wow. we got to play shows that we didn't get to as as Bluebeard, and and I think that was just enough. Everyone just kind of enjoyed writing songs and and playing around the basement and being friends and and occasionally playing for other people. So it was a great way to stay together and connected and then that band broke up and then none of us talked to each other for years <laughs> so wow <laughs> there is a uh, definitely uh, i think i mean to my uneducated ears a kind of change in sound though growth i guess some would call it in the last four years between the end of bluebeard and the beginning of bull market i mean specifically yeah. in a track like uh, lights collide you know with that kind of breakbeat at the beginning is completely yeah, yeah there it, it was a huge change uh, for us, I think, because you didn't, A, times had changed. Uh, mm -hmm. We were now, I guess, oh my God, in our 20s. So we were listening to different stuff. Everybody was kind of getting into different things, like dub and that kind of stuff. Or we might have wanted to do the same thing, explore our instruments a little more and branch out in, in how we played. And having Jonah in the band, I think helped do that too, because he's such a amazing singer. He, his voice is just so, I don't know. It, every time I hear him sing, I'm just kind of in awe of his, the <laughs> sound of his voice, if that makes sense. Just, yeah. it sounds like something soothing. I, I don't know. It's so familiar because we've known them since they were, kids playing in a band in a basement where they never oh, wow. played anywhere. So having seen Jonah uh, become this incredible singer, that, that was fun too, I think, and inspiring about being in that band. But it was a change just because you can't keep playing the same stuff over and over. Mm -hmm. I think our goal right, yeah. was to, to change all of the time just because otherwise you get super bored. So if you keep releasing the same stuff or writing the same kind of song, well, that's then you're not really a fan of music. You're just a fan of whatever thing made you successful in the first place. Right. Yeah, I, well said. I don't think yeah. that's a that's a trap you want to get into. You'd rather be progressing in a yeah. way that's entertaining for yourself and shows growth, right? Now um, we'll wrap this up soon, but um, before we kind of leave the '90s and the early 2000s. Um, any kind of final thoughts on the decade, maybe in you know, the Canadian music scene as a whole or in the 90s, your experience within them, anything we didn't touch on that you thought might come up today? I mean, it was an amazing time for Canadian music. There were so many bands and so many people going across Canada and playing for even bands in the States. It was just a great time for kind of indie music in general. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, I think everybody got to see some some great music and and the camaraderie of people was really great and then it kind of died when bands kind of took a back seat to pre-recorded music that's kind of mm -hmm. what killed it i think uh and that was sad and it's i it doesn't seem like it's ever kind of bounced back to that sort of thing but it was an amazing time i like obviously i was a kid at that time you know just in my teens late teens and early 20s and it was amazing to see what happened in town. Bands like the Waltons, it was great to see them do that thing. And other bands in town, like there's a band called Sylvie 
and like I said, mm-hmm. Ghost of Modern Man and I Spy and stuff, just to see all those bands and to watch the scene in Regina become this living, breathing thing was amazing, and I would never trade it for anything. Oh, well said, sir. Now, you took a break from kind of releasing and recording for like 20 years. I mean, you yeah. probably played a ton in your own basement, but you recently uh, kind of got back out there in 2021 um, with I Want a Record Out of You, a single you have on Spotify. Um, what kind of kind of led you to kind of take the plunge again, I guess, and put something back out there for the people? I am a stay-at-home dad. So nice. uh, I take care of my kids when they come home for lunch, and I'm home all the time. And at some point, that got boring, and I took some uh, classes through Berkeley Online to learn how to be huh. a engineer, kind of an audio engineer, do some audio engineering. And uh, I took a course about song production, music production, uh, and what makes a good song. So I'd written a song during the course of that course is a fun thing to do. And it's about my wife. So it is a love song. She's got her own band here in town uh, huh. called uh, Team Player. Uh, so it was a song about her trying to be supportive of her. And it was a fun thing to do just to record and write myself in my uh, basement and uh, put out. The sound engineer is ready. The musicians are set, and I see a record made.
now that's not the main i'm in a band with uh two of the guys from ghost of modern man uh a, a member of despostado who were another uh pretty big band in regina and a member of an old band from the 90s in regina too called nice and we just kind of have a old man band where we play uh <laughs> the music of our teens but as uh nearing 50 year old men so now uh final question now i have a playlist on apple and spotify of all 90s uh quote-unquote can rock and i'm asking all the guests who contributes three songs to the playlist so how would you like bluebeard to be represented on the playlist yeah the three songs i would choose are uh, there's a song called sweetheart of the rodeo Hmm. or new home off that record those two i think are really good mm -hmm. i love them there's a song called a special presentation uh, that's one of my all-time favorite songs and there's another song called 15 minutes at 400 degrees i think that kind of shows uh, the path of the band nice uh through its history i think it's a good kind of collection Excellent choices, my friend. Now, um, if people wanted to um, check out the rest of the Bluebeard catalog, um, do you have anything streaming or available for purchase? Yeah, we put a bunch of stuff up on, well, a collection of the demos and, and the full album and some bull market stuff on uh, Apple Music and Spotify. But we also set up a, a Bandcamp page at bluebeardyqr.bandcamp.com where we're selling it for basically whatever you want to pay i think we have a minimum of five bucks but it's really whatever you want to pay and every dime we get from that is going to go to uh, charities within saskatchewan so we don't take anything from it we we won't make any money off it but we we do want to if people were fans and want to buy it uh it everything's going to, to whichever charity we choose at the time uh in saskatchewan yeah, it's kind of keeping with what we did for shows. Like when we booked our own shows, we would take uh, food bank donations. And if you brought a food bank donation, you'd take a buck off the door. So it's kind of keeping in the spirit of that, where at least we can help out in some way. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, chat about uh, Bluebeard and your experience in the 90s, man. It's been uh, fantastic. Yeah, awesome. Thank you very much.